Good morning. I love Christmas, like probably more than most people, and I brought you some proof this morning. <laughs> so I've always loved Christmas. This is me. This is my brother, Philip. This is my sister, Melissa, and my sister, Hannah. I've always loved Christmas sweaters. The more authentic, the better. I like to think that whoever made this sweater 30 or 40 years ago looked at it and just said, now that is beautiful. <laughs> I love decorating Christmas cookies. Mine is the neatest by far. <laughs> Proud of that. I love the story of Jesus' birth. So this was a play date we had with some neighbor kids. And I was Mary. My sister Hannah was Joseph. That's typical older sibling, younger sibling dynamics there. And then Melissa is a scantily clad angel in the back. So that's good. I love being with my family on Christmas and rocking some really sweet puff shoulders, apparently. I like that this one's jetting out. I love snow. I grew up mostly in western Washington near the Puget Sound, so it was super rainy, but it did not snow very much. So anytime it snowed, it was such a treat. I still feel giddy whenever it snows. And last but not least, I love getting presents. So that was opening a pogo stick. That's the face of surprise and delight. And we can put that picture away now, so. I love Christmas. I love watching Hallmark movies and drinking hot chocolate by the fire and red and green and lights and carols and anything warm and cozy. I think coziness is probably my love language. I love Christmas. But growing up, I always kind of thought that Christmas and Advent were the same thing. My family practiced Advent. We had an Advent wreath that we would light and Every week, um, I think it was after dinner on Sunday nights, we would do an Advent devotional the four weeks leading up until Christmas. But mostly what I remember is we would do this devotional, and my siblings and me were sitting around the table, and we would roll our eyes and elbow each other and kick each other underneath the table and feel so bored and then argue about who got to blow out the candles. And I'm sure my mom would tell you there was way more to it than that, but that's what I remember about Advent growing up. And if you've missed the last couple of weeks, you're probably wondering why we're even talking about Christmas or Advent before it's Thanksgiving. Um, but if you have been around, you'll know that we're actually partway through our Advent series already this year because we're doing something a little different. And we're embracing the ancient way of practicing Advent, which Norton mentioned was about six or seven weeks. And it actually wasn't very closely tied to Christmas. So historically, Advent was a season of looking forward with longing and expectation for Jesus to come back and for God to make things right in the world. And it recognized all that was wrong in the world. So it was a very somber season, much like the 40-day journey of Lent leading up to the celebration of Easter. Of course, Advent is connected to Christmas in the sense that God kept his promise once to send Jesus into the world, and so that's why we have a deep-rooted hope and trust that he'll do it again. We look back and see God's faithfulness, and we look ahead awaiting Jesus' return. And this year, we've created a couple Advent resources for you to engage at home. So one Norton mentioned is an Advent guide. It's short devotionals for you to do three days a week, and you can get that on the info table on your way out. We also have an Advent Spotify playlist, so if you just go on to Spotify and search NDC Songs for Advent, you can listen to that there. And then also, if you check out the art in the hallway um, on your way out, we, one of our members, Ellie Shin, is an artist, and she's been painting an installment to go with each week, so make sure you look at that if you have not seen that as well. 
As we embrace this new, old way of practicing Advent, we've been focusing on this passage. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand, take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. So I won't dive in too much. If you did miss the past two weeks, go back and listen online. And especially week one, Norton set up the whole series and really focused on this passage in particular. But I want to highlight one thing in this passage, and that's that Paul writes that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people, but it's against the powers of this dark world. So during Advent, we light one more candle each week, and what begins as dark becomes brighter and brighter as we remember all that God has done, we acknowledge the ways he's still at work in the world, and we have hope for what's yet to come. But to recognize light is to acknowledge that there is darkness. This is still a dark, dark world. And so each week of this Advent series, we're focusing on one of the powers of this dark world. One of the things about this world that's just not right, not how God intended it to be, the things we struggle against, the things that we're waiting and hoping for God to come and conquer once and for all. And today, the power of this dark world that we're talking about is that of death and tragedy. I think this is probably the power that's easiest to see when we look around the world today. It doesn't take much convincing to remind us that this is a dark world. If we look around and see all the tragedies that so often surround us, you can flip on the news for two seconds and then flip it off and you'll see. Natural disasters are constantly occurring and reminding us that creation itself is broken. The world that God made to, to flourish and to provide the necessary environment and resources for life to exist so often damages and destroys life instead. Every day there are unexplainable tragedies in our communities and around the world. And there are untimely deaths. Many of you know that my brother passed away in September. I have one more picture of him to share with you. That's him with um, his wife, Jen, and his kids, Josh and Bella. They just turned five and three last month. Philip lived in Florida, so as Hurricane Dorian was approaching, they decided to take a spontaneous family road trip and escaped to Nashville for the weekend. And he was also interviewing for a job there. He had been with his company for five years, but they had just lost a major client, and they were doing massive layoffs, which included cutting his position. And he felt total peace about it and was so excited for what was going to be next. He, um, sorry, he wholeheartedly thought that the next chapter was going to be them moving to Nashville and him getting this job, and they were dreaming and planning and looking at houses and thinking about the future. They had an amazing weekend in Tennessee. The interview went great. The kids had so much fun. But then on their way home, Bella got sick. She had a fever, and then Philip caught it. And this was unusual. He hadn't had a fever since he was a little kid, but it wasn't super high, so they weren't overly concerned. Um, but he felt awful, so Jen did most of the driving. They made it home safely. They all went to bed. And then he just didn't wake up. 
We don't know if the fever had anything to do with it. We're still waiting for the autopsy results. But that was the only thing that was wrong with him. He was a healthy 32-year-old. And all of a sudden, he was gone. There was no warning, no explanation. Jen woke up, and after a traumatic blur of calling 911 and doing CPR and seeing him transported in an ambulance and winding up in a hospital room, her new reality set in. She went to bed a wife and woke up a widow and a single mom. Josh and Bella woke up without a dad to play with them or build them castles or forts or trains out of cardboard anymore. He would never be able to help them with their homework. He would never cheer them on from the sidelines of a sporting event or a recital. He won't see them graduate from high school. He won't walk Bella down the aisle at her wedding. Sometimes the powers of this dark world just hit you square in the face. Things happen and it's so clear. This is not how it's supposed to be. We feel that just deep down in our core. This is not what God intended life to be like. We see this when we or someone that we know experiences illness, chronic pain, infertility, loss, all sorts of tragedy and suffering. And so much of what we experience is simply the result of living in a dark world. There is no other explanation for death or tragedy. It's not about whether you've done good or bad and being blessed or punished accordingly. God is not Santa watching if you've been naughty or nice and giving you either presents or coal. Whether or not we experience this kind of tragedy doesn't depend on us or our behavior. There are powers that war against us. And I think the powers that we're talking about in this series are the things that Satan uses to try and destroy us. It's easy to see how death and tragedy can destroy somebody's faith. It's natural in the midst of grief to call out, where are you, God? Why? Why did you allow this to happen? Can't you see? Don't you care? Why did you do this to me? It's easy to get angry and resentful and question God in the midst of tragedy. I love the Psalms because they're just so real and honest. So many of them are laments written by people pouring out their hearts to God in anguish. I love these cries of how long. We'll put some on the screen. Psalm 6.3 says, my soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Psalm 13.1-2, how long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Psalm 35, 17. How long, Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from the ravages, my precious life from these lions. And Psalm 82, 2. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? It's natural in the wake of death and tragedy to shake your fist at God to hurl accusations at him, to let him know you're not pleased, that he didn't meet your expectations, that you feel like he let you down. We know that in the wake 
of death or tragedy or in the midst of various kinds of suffering will experience grief. Grief has different stages and they're not linear. Grief comes in waves. One minute will be fine and then another wave of grief will just wash over us again. Sometimes we'll feel in total shock or denial. I feel this at some point almost every day right now. I just cannot believe my brother is gone. It's so hard for my mind and heart to comprehend this. I was cleaning out the bottom of the oven the other day and I wiped up this little pile of ash and thought, that's what my brother's body looks like now. That is so hard for me to imagine or grasp. Other times we'll feel anger, we'll feel outraged at this thing that we're experiencing that's so unjust, so unfair, so not right. That's what we just read in these Psalms. And more and more as time passes in the wake of death or tragedy, we'll feel acceptance. We'll begin living a new normal and gradually come to terms with what has happened. The waves of grief still come, but they're smaller and more spaced out. We'll have moments of denial or anger, but they're typically less intense as time goes on. There are more stages and we can learn a lot through the field of psychology about processing grief, but my point is that there are natural responses we'll experience in the wake of death and tragedy. And I love that the Bible touches on this in the Psalms. It shows us that we're not alone and that God is big enough to handle all of our grief and any anger that comes with it. But I think Paul's words in Ephesians 6 are especially important for us to remember when we experience death or tragedy. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, and I would add, it's not against God. It's against the powers of this dark world. So if you remember nothing else from today, remember this. In the midst of death and tragedy, God is not our enemy. He's our only hope. Satan would love to use death and tragedy to discourage and distract us. He would love for our hearts to become hard and for us to turn away from God. But it's a trap. Because then when you leave God behind, what do you have left? Where is your hope? I love this interaction of Jesus with one of his 12 disciples, Peter. Another one of the 12 disciples, John, records that Jesus miraculously fed thousands and thousands of people and gained a massive following. But then he was teaching some hard things and a bunch of his new fans decided that he wasn't for them after all. So they unfollowed him on Instagram. Just kidding. This is what John writes. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. We read in the accounts of Jesus' life in the Bible all the times that Peter gets it wrong, and it's a lot. But here, he has a moment of clarity. If he turned his back on Jesus when things got hard, where else would he go? What else would he have? God is not our enemy. He's our only hope. And God gets it. God himself has experienced death and tragedy. The amazing thing about Christmas is that the creator enters his creation and takes on the full human experience. Jesus has a friend he cares about that dies and he sobs uncontrollably. Jesus himself experienced great physical pain and suffering and emotional turmoil and betrayal and even death. In Advent, we remember that though the world is dark, it will not be this way forever. 
As we light candles, we proclaim that in the midst of darkness, God is with us, he is present, he keeps his promises. He entered his creation once, humbly, born among animals as a poor, helpless, naked nobody. He couldn't even hold his neck up. He nursed and he cried and he needed to be swaddled to go to sleep. But one day he will return, not as a baby, but as a king. He will conquer all the powers of this dark world. He will establish perfection in his creation once more. There will be no more tragedy or death. This is our hope, and it's in God alone. I love that God has given us a glimpse of the end of the story. He gave a vision to John, the same disciple who recorded the interaction with Peter. And John wrote down this vision and passed it along. And it's what we call Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Revelation 21, 1 to 5 is John writing. And he says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I love this picture. I find such comfort in these words. God's dwelling place will be among his people. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. He will make all things new. It's such a triumphant picture, and it's filled with so much hope. But I think what's so hard and why we struggle so much when we have a close brush with death or tragedy is that even though we can get it in our heads that this world is not right, that there's powers that are work at work against us, that our only hope is for God to come and fulfill his promise and right all the wrongs and conquer the darkness and make all things new, it's still hard to accept it in our hearts. Because we're living in this time in between. Can I teach you guys a fancy theological phrase today? Yeah. Okay. Inaugurated eschatology. So to inaugurate something is to begin it. Like the presidential inauguration marks the beginning of a presidency. So if something is inaugurated, it's already begun. And then eschatology is the study of the last things or end things. So it's the part of theology where we focus on the end of the story. Revelation, end times, things yet to come. So inaugurated eschatology is the belief that the end of the story began with Jesus' first coming. His life, death, and resurrection marks the beginning of a new era. He inaugurated God's kingdom reign on earth, but we don't see it fully. We won't see the fullness of God as king until Jesus comes back. So we're living in this time in between, the already and the not yet. And that can be really hard and frustrating. It's hard and frustrating because we've seen God's power at work. We look at the life of Jesus and we see God do amazing miracles. We look at the world around us and we see sometimes God still does. We know he can work in this way, no problem. He can bring healing and wholeness and even raise people from the dead. He could destroy all the powers of this dark world with a single word and it wouldn't be too hard for him. 
There wouldn't be any sweat off his brow. And we know someday he will do this. But so far, he hasn't yet. Sometimes he intervenes and saves and heals. Sometimes he answers our cries for rescue with a yes. And sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes tragedies happen. And people suffer and die. And he does nothing to stop it. That's hard. That's a hard tension we live in. It's a hard aspect of this age that we live in in between Jesus coming once and waiting and longing for him to come back. Advent is all about this waiting. It's about this longing for Jesus to return. It's about learning to live in the midst of this dark world. It's about acknowledging the struggle that we're in, that we have an enemy and he's real and he wants to destroy us. He'll use all sorts of things to tempt us to turn away from God. He'll use wealth like we, we talked about last week, and he'll use death and tragedy. Advent is about this waiting, and it's about acknowledging that in the middle of all this, in the middle of this darkness that we face, we're not alone. God is with us, and God is not our enemy, but is our only hope. So what do we do? When we talk about death and tragedy, there's not a lot we can do. There's not a lot that's depending on us or a list of things to change or fix. Like I said, we don't cause death or tragedy by our bad behavior, and we can't prevent it by our good behavior. That's really, really bad Santa Claus theology, and I think sometimes we apply that to God and assume he works that way, but he doesn't. We'll continue to struggle against death and tragedy, and we can't do anything to avoid experiencing it. But I think there are a couple practical things that we can do in the wake of it after it's happened. We can take steps to process our grief well. If you're in a season of deep grieving, I get it. I'm there too. I think for us, we can talk to people about it. That may include seeing a counselor, maybe joining a grief shared group. There's lots of books that might be helpful. We can let ourselves experience the emotions as they come up and not try to stuff or ignore them. We can let ourselves feel pain and invite others in to help care for us instead of pretending like we can handle it all on our own. And we can show up on Wednesday, December 18th at 7 p.m. for the longest night service and grieve together for an hour. I hope I see you there. If you haven't experienced much suffering or tragedy in your life, here's what you can do. Wake up. This Advent series is all about waking up to the darkness that's around us. We can try to ignore it or pretend it's not there, but it is. We have an enemy who's trying to destroy us. People all around you are hurting. So for you, open your eyes and look for someone who's suffering. Someone who's taking the brunt of living in this dark world right now. Someone who could use a listening ear or some token of compassion. Identify someone in your life who's grieving this Christmas and make it your mission to bless them. Do something tangible to remind them that God sees them and loves them. And not in a way that's trite or minimizing their pain. Do something that shows you're aware they're experiencing something that's probably harder than you can imagine. And though you can't fix it, you're here and you care for them. And this may be the hardest, but if you're the kind of person who really struggles with this topic, 
You wrestle with why God can heal and rescue, but doesn't always. You struggle to take that long view and put your hope in him to come back and save once and for all someday. If you're honest, it's a lot easier for you to see God as the enemy when tragedies happen. And you get stuck either in a place of expressing anger and pointing the finger at him or just walking away altogether and doubting his existence. There's one thing you can do, and that's hang in there. Hang in there. Keep coming back to church. We'll try not to give you easy answers that don't satisfy. Keep reading your Bible and exploring more about who God is. Keep wrestling. Keep pouring out your heart to God like the writers of the Psalms. God honors those who earnestly seek him. And he's big enough to handle all our questions and doubts and fears, all our anger and sadness. Ask him to draw close and reveal himself more and more to you this Advent season. And I think you're going to have to sit with some unanswered questions. For all of us, here's the biggest thing we can do in our waiting and longing in a dark world that's full of death and tragedy. We can keep trusting God and clinging to his promises. We can cling to Revelation 21. No more tears, no more crying or mourning or pain or death, no more darkness, only light and life and joy. Only a God who will make all things new and eternity forever with him in a perfect place he will create for us to explore and enjoy and delight in. This is the hope my brother had. He loved Jesus with his whole heart. He was so looking forward to the day when Jesus would come back and reclaim his world, destroying the darkness. This is the hope my sister-in-law, Jen, has. Her worst nightmare, her biggest fear had come true. But in her grief, she has not stopped proclaiming the gospel or truths about God. She's desperately clinging to this hope each and every day as she navigates her new normal. This is the hope my parents have. They lost their firstborn child, their only son. This Christmas probably won't be very merry. They'll pull out their box of decorations and find his stocking, his ornaments, his big white Christmas teddy bear. But they'll know that they're not separated from him forever. And this is my hope. That death doesn't have the final word. Jesus came at it as a baby at Christmas, but then he grew up. He was killed. He was probably about my brother's age. His mom knelt at the cross and wept. She had lost her firstborn child, the baby she had held so tight. The one she nursed so he could survive was now dead in front of her eyes but death did not have the last word. Jesus rose from the grave, and as his followers, we will too. We'll spend eternity with God. Death is not the end. It's a doorway we all pass through, and then the real party begins. And in Advent, we look ahead with longing hearts. Surrounded by darkness, we trust in God's promise to redeem and restore. We cling to the truth that the world will one day be set right. There'll be no more tragedy, no more death. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. And until that day, we wait and we cling to God knowing that he's not our enemy, but is our only hope. 
a tradition we pretty recently established in New Denver is once in a while we like to have a time of extended prayer during the service. So I'm going to put some prompts on the screen and you'll have a minute or two to pray silently about each one. And then at the end I'll close this in prayer and we'll keep worshiping together. Let's pray.